Jesus abiding, Jesus obeying, Jesus proclaiming people. Amen. Well, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the intentional spiritual life and what it means to live an intentional spiritual life. We've spent the past several weeks looking at missions and reaching Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of something. And that is first and foremost that we are a people who are meant to pursue Jesus Christ and be in relationship with him because sometimes the mission can get so overwhelming or or so occupy our attention that we can lose sight of our inner life with Christ. I think this is part of the problem that the Ephesians run into in the book of Revelation where Jesus gives these words to them that they were doing all the right things, they were standing for all the right truth, but In the middle of it all, they lost focus on their first love, Jesus Christ. On this Reformation Day, I want to call to mind something that uh, longtime Alliance pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote. We said, come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him, then prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out, and when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Tozer was big on looking back at believers throughout the centuries who were people who pursued the presence of God in their lives. And as we come to this Reformation Day, and sometimes we don't often think about a day like this, as we look back to Martin Luther when uh, he listed out his protest against the Catholic Church and uh, what that did for the landscape of Christianity, but to look back at this broader picture of those who have gone before us. And we'll find that some of them had some very significant words. Teresa of Avila wrote, Prayer is an act of love. Words are not needed. We're going to come back to that. Because John of the Cross... John, where are you? There he is. He said, Contemplation is nothing else but a secret, peaceful, and loving infusion of God, which, if admitted, will set the soul on fire with the spirit of love. And then old Martin Luther. He said, The fewer the words, the better the prayer. That seems odd, doesn't it? We have this theme, whether it be Teresa or John or Martin and and even Tozer, when we think about prayer, we think about words. We think about talking. We think about expressing our needs to God, expressing our desires to God. And here come these writers of the past and said, that is great, but what you really want to strive for is that place where your prayer no longer contains words. To which we might say, what do you do then? What is prayer if if there are no words involved? But if you think about a relationship, if you think about a married couple, coming to that sweet spot in their marriage where they can simply be together, And in that being together, even if there aren't words being exchanged, it's in that loving presence of one another that expresses something that's so much deeper than words could ever express. And this is at the heart of what these writers are getting at. That there's nothing wrong with saying words in prayer. There's 
a great aspect to that, and that is invited in Scripture. Please don't misunderstand that there's something wrong with that. There's not. But ultimately, we can treat prayer as kind of rubbing a magic lamp. Here's the list of things we want. And fortunately, God doesn't limit it to three like some genie. And so we can just give as many needs as we can think of. We express them all to God. And then we go about our day. We tell God all the ways that life isn't working out the way that we want it to. And and then we go about our day. Or we tell God all the things that we want him to fix. And he invites us to do all of that. Yet there's also this place where we simply sit in the presence of Almighty God and say nothing and just be in his presence. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Notice the focus of these verses. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Not the benefits of God, not the the gifts of God, not the favors of God, but for God himself, the psalmist pants and thirsts. That word pants, it, it means a, long, a longing for, a desire for. A longing for, a desire for God. Not just what God can do for him, but for God himself. And he says he thirsts for God. To desire eagerly after God. When uh, it was the summer before senior year of college and Julie went with a Christian leadership group out to New Jersey for a summer-long internship training program. And on the weekend of her birthday, I took a bus to spend the weekend out with this entire team and and see her and uh, have that time. And I happened to pick the worst possible weekend to go because it was like 100 degrees with about 5,000% humidity. It was one of those days you just stepped outside and immediately every drop of moisture in your body just poured out. And the, the director of the program was showing, us, showing me around and took us out to eat and was just going all over the place. And I was so incredibly thirsty. I have never been as thirsty as that in my life. And I remember he was trying to decide where he should take us to lunch. And in my mind, I'm like, just pick some place and pick it fast because I need something to drink. I don't care what they have for food. I just need a drink and I need free refills. This is going to be a serious intake of fluids. And I look back at that and I think about this psalm and just this sense of thirsting for God, desiring God, needing God. Not because we say, God, you know, life isn't going the way that I want it to, or things are out of control in the world, or here's all of my needs, or here's all the things I want you to do. But God, I just want you. I just want your presence. I want to be with you, to love you, and to know you. In fact, look at Isaiah chapter 26. Where it says, my soul yearns for, what? You, in the night. 
My spirit within me earnestly seeks what? You. God. The person of God, not the things of God or the blessings of God or the gifts of God, but my soul yearns. It cries out for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for my flesh faints for as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The psalmist gives this image of just crawling his way through the desert under the scorching heat, desperate for a drop of water and saying, God, this is me in my search after you. For one drop of your presence, earnestly I'm seeking you. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh is fainting for you. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Is God our desire? Not what he can do, not what he can give. All of those are additional benefits and blessings, but first and foremost, him. Think about heaven. Think about what excites you most about heaven and eternity in heaven. And and it's great and wonderful to say, well, I can't wait to see my loved ones who have passed away. And that is going to be a factor of heaven. I can't wait for the streets of gold and the mansions of glory. And all of that stuff is great. But at the end of the day, if that's all that heaven is, it's hell. Heaven primarily is the presence of God. I remember when I was younger thinking that heaven would be so incredibly boring. Because again, at this point, all I'd ever seen were paintings of heaven and there were fat angelic babies with wings flying around. And it's like, okay, so heaven is an eternal church service. Mm. Okay. If heaven is simply a reunion with loved ones, let's say that's amazing for the first thousand years. Then what? If, if heaven is about the streets of gold and the mansions, that, that's great for 5,000 years, then what? Remember what it's like when you get that gift you want for Christmas and you can't wait for it and you finally get it and for a week it changes your world. And then it's just another thing. What keeps heaven occupying our hearts for eternity is that God is there. And there's no end, there's no limit to discovering more of who he is. Psalm 143, verse 6, says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And I love that imagery there of I stretch out my hands to you like I am reaching as far as I can to reach out to God, to, to grasp God. And that was probably like 3D for people watching online, but... Again, the sense of yearning and longing and striving and desiring, not things, not stuff, not circumstances, but God himself. Brings us to the question, 
how close to God do you want to be? How close to Jesus do you want to be? A.W. Tozer said, you are as close to God right now as you have chosen to be. Based on how you've spent your time, how you've prioritized your life, you are spiritually where you want to be. If this is as good as it gets for you spiritually, can you sit back and say, I'm okay with that? Or is there something in you saying, if, if there's any closer place I can be with God, I've got to get there. If there's anything still to be known about a relationship with Jesus, I want to discover that. Is there something in you that is stirring and longing and desiring and craving something more in your relationship with Jesus Christ? For years I've been fascinated by this painting from the Sistine Chapel, and I I know I've shown it before. It's called The Creation of Adam, and I cropped the picture um, just for sensitive eyes. And not only is it a beautiful painting, but there's something about it that I never noticed before until somebody pointed it out to me. Look at God. The, The figure of God is on the far right. Notice God's posture. He is reaching. Reaching so much that he's kind of like holding on for support. He is reaching out as far as he can, stretching out towards Adam. And look at Adam. Notice his posture. Dude's about an iced tea and a pillow away from a nap. He's leaning back. He's relaxed. His wrist is just dangling. All the effort he needs to touch God is just, if he just lifted his wrist, he could touch the hand of God, but he can't even do that. And what this painting says to me is that God is seeking a deeper place of relationship with you and with me than even we are ready for or desiring. And if that is true, I don't just want to lift up my wrist. I want to lean in to him to get to that place that all of these writers talked about where The sweetest part of prayer is when you go beyond words and it's simply silence in the presence of God. Because we have this promise in James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In other words, he's waiting. He's waiting. Jesus gave the story of the prodigal son where the son wanders off and the father, we find, goes out every single day waiting for his son to come back. The father's waiting. The first step that the son makes, as soon as the father sees him, as soon as the son makes that next step, the father races to embrace him. And that's the posture of our Heavenly Father towards us today. It doesn't matter how far you think you've fallen, how far you think you've gone, or what you think you've done. I can never possibly deserve a relationship with God, or I can never be welcomed back to a relationship with God. It's all a lie. Because He stands ready to embrace you to engage in a relationship with you, not about stuff or uh, about... 
not even about changing the world, but first and foremost about him and a relationship with him. I think this is where current evangelical discipleship begins to fall apart. Because typically what we do is we say to people, do you want to know that you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, who doesn't? So pray this prayer, receive Jesus into your heart, and then you can know you go to heaven. And then we send them off and wish them well. Or if they do get plugged into a church, we say, well, take these classes, do these things. And all those things are great. But we never ask a key question. Do you want Jesus? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus? Because I've known people in my life who can quote almost any scripture you can think of, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. You can read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, yet not know Jesus Christ. Again, the Ephesians in the book of Revelation, they knew all the stuff but they lost sight of their first love. And there have been voices speaking into our Christian Missionary Alliance family warning us that we need to be careful that we don't get so caught up in the mission of God that we lose sight of God. That we lose sight of a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you pray, what's that like for you? Do you remember first falling in love with someone and how you could get on the phone with them or sit next to them and talk and suddenly you lose track of all time? What if prayer was like that? Because I think if we're to, uh, we're to be honest, there's some of us when we pray and, and we pray and we pray and we pour our hearts out in prayer and we worship and we lift up every need we can think of to God and we look up and five minutes have gone by. What if in prayer you're simply lost track of time because you were in the presence of the one you adore and the one who loves you beyond what you could ever possibly understand? Is that something you long for in your walk with Jesus? Where prayer is the sweetest part of the day, not because you tell him all the things you want or all the things you need, but simply because you're in the presence of the one you love. The intentional spiritual life says, I want that. And so I am going to organize my life around the pursuit of that goal. I want to make this first and foremost in my life. Some of you might remember The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and his band leader, Doc Severinsen. Doc Severinsen for me was my goal when I began playing the trumpet, I wanted to play like Doc Severinsen. And so I'd watch him and I'd listen to him and I made that the goal that I was striving after. Because the reality is if you don't have a goal in mind that you're pursuing, it's, it's hard to really move forward. And sometimes we can get caught in this Christian rut of we go to church and we, we read the Bible and we pray for prayer requests and but we, if we were to be honest, we say, I kind of feel like I'm just spinning in place. Like I haven't really gone anywhere. 
feeling like I don't know that I can say that I, I love Jesus more today than I did a year ago. Because we're just in this rhythm and we don't have a, what is it that I long for? Do we long to be as close to Jesus as we possibly can? To be able to lose track of time in his presence. To be people who cherish time in his presence, who seek his presence. As we sang that, that beautiful song earlier about speaking the name of Jesus, it's really easy to do that when you're in love. I annoyed so many people when I was in college. The first day I met Julie, I, I went home later that day and the whole hour drive back to my house with my mom. I'm like, Mom, I met the woman I'm going to marry. Okay, Paul, that's nice. Like, no, Mom, you don't get it. She's made it. She's great. It's, you just can't help it when you're in love. Speaking the name of Jesus is so easy when he is the one that you love. Where's your heart with Jesus today? Not a question of condemnation. Because Jesus is more concerned about where you're going than where you've been. All it takes is one step. And he rushes to meet you. I pray that we would set our hearts intentionally to be people who love Jesus, who love his presence, who can't help but talk about the one that we love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us.